You dry? A little bit. Aren't you glad this morning that we go to a church where you actually have like a, like a parking garage for one time? Isn't that kind of cool thing? For little things. Uh, I want to introduce myself this morning. Some of you know me, some of you don't. My name is John Weddington. I'm uh, kind of new here to Neartown, and I'm part of the Neartown Church Planting Residency. And so whenever I tell people, like, yeah, I'm a church planting resident, they're like, okay. They don't know what that is. So I'm also going to ask me really quick to give a brief overview of what that means. Basically, Neartown Church has a desire not to only be a church here, but in different places all throughout the city. And so the way that Neartown wants to go about doing that is by planting different churches across the city. Not necessarily because we have so many people we need to multiply, though that could be the problem, but just because reaching different people in different contexts, sometimes it's better to plant different churches. And so that's the whole point of the Neartown Church Planting Residency. I'm kind of the first generation. There will be guys that kind of come after me. And so that's kind of who I am. My name is John Weddington. My wife, Halsey, is here. We're, we're newly married. We've been married how long? Like over a month. So it's been, it's been really great. So um, also, if, you, if you're a regular this morning, I just want to say thank you for your attendance. Thank you for coming out in this weather and being faithful to, to join with us. And if, if you are new this morning, I want to say welcome. We want this to be like a welcoming, safe environment for you to hear about the the Lord. Um, like I said, I, I'm new here, and you know, when I came to Neartown Church, it was very, very interesting because the way I grew up and the way I did church growing up, it was very, very different. So there were a lot of things that kind of caught me off guard. But one of the most interesting things about Neartown Church that I really, really liked from the second I walked in was the way that Neartown Church measures success. Okay, so if you're a part of Neartown Church, you know that we have six mission measures that we measure how successful we are as a church. Okay. Whereas most churches say, okay, success is based upon maybe attendance, if a lot of people come, or maybe they say success is based upon uh, cash, how much money we have as a church, how much people tithe, or maybe how much, uh, or how nice our facility is, that kind of lets you know how successful we are as a church. But Neartown Church has six mission measures. We're really quick, let's walk through this. Connected. Neartown Church thinks if we are connected as individuals in our daily lives, and if we're going through life together, then we are successful. Are we learning as a church? Or are, we're not successful unless we are growing in our faith. Are we generous? Do we give of our money? You know, a lot of times we want to give it every way and pull back there. Are we generous with our money? Are we passionate? Do we live it out? Are, are we loving? Do we do random acts of kindness for those in the church and outside the church? But this one right here is my favorite mission measure, if, if you're allowed to have a mission, favorite mission measure. It's the word free. Are we free? I love that. It's this idea that at Neartown Church, our success hinges upon whether or not you and I, as part of this church, feel free in Jesus. And, and that's my favorite one because that's so important. You know, we talk about Neartown Church about talking to busy people and trying to, to worship Jesus in the busyness of our lives. But are we free in Jesus? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're, we're going to read a, read a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And the whole point of this letter is this church has forgotten that they're free in Christ. They've been kind of falling under some false teachers. They're talking about all these rules and regulations that you need. And Paul is writing this letter to simply say this, that only faith in Jesus brings true freedom and unity with God. Would you open your Bibles if you have them this morning uh, to the book of Philippians? If you don't have a Bible, just simply raise your hand. It's not an issue. We have Bibles here for you. We've got one over here. Um, open your Bibles, and uh, if you have one of the Bibles we're handing out, it's on page 981, but we're coming out of the book of Philippians, the third chapter. 
And so, really quick, just a little background. Uh, we've been going through the book of uh, Philippians, and uh, this church that we're reading about is about 10 years old. This is a church that Paul planted uh, when he basically witnessed to a group of women, and they believed. And because they believed and they accepted the message of the gospel, they planted a church there. Uh, Paul is under house arrest, so that's why he has to write this letter. He can't come to them personally. And, but 10 years ago, this church was not confused about what it took to be saved. They understood that only faith in Jesus brings true freedom and unity with God. They become confused. And Paul is writing this letter to these false, false teachers and addressing it this way. Would you want to stand with me this morning as we read the word of God together? In the book of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. May we see it this morning. So the first thing Paul tells us this morning in this letter to the Philippians, he says this, that we should have no confidence in our flesh or our personal ability. So when we're searching and trying to find how to have faith in Jesus and how to live this Christian life, we should have no confidence in our flesh or our personal ability. So Paul opens up with kind of a, a general encouragement, telling them to persevere. But then you see something very, very interesting. Paul is mad. Okay? Paul is gravely concerned, and to be honest, he's quite furious. Okay? He uses three words, three names, to describe these false teachers he's talking against. He calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's mad. He, he, he's upset. And the group he's talking about here are called the Judaizers. Okay? These are the false teachers that are spreading lies in the church. Okay? And basically what the Judaizers did was they said, no, no. Faith in Jesus, that's not enough to save you. This is what you have to do. First, if you're not already a Jew, because you become a Jew by faith, okay? That was a proselyte. You had to kind of confess faith in, 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 in the Jewish traditions, okay? And then after that, you had to follow the Mosaic law, okay? And I'm going to give you just really quick some a brief um, kind of overview of the Mosaic law. These are just a few of the rules. This is not to bring humor, but this is to kind of show kind of the things that were asking these new believers to follow, Okay? It says, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. And you shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. They had to follow all these rules. These people were saying, no, it's not just enough faith. You have to follow this entire law. The Pharisees who were kind of like the like the heroes of, these, of the Judaizers, 
They took the Ten Commandments and they made 613 rules out of it. I don't know how you do that. But, and they, they kept them all. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that, look, you can do all these things, but if you don't simply have faith in Jesus, that is where salvation comes from. And so, once again, the reason why Paul is so adamant here, the reason why he is so frustrated is because he has been one of these people before. He used to be a legalist. He, he used to be a Pharisee. And so he, he has this kind of personal vendetta against this kind of a lifestyle. It's kind of like, I guess, maybe if you're a parent and, and you've gone down a really bad path once in your life and, and you see your kid going down that same path, there's some extra, some extra kind of maybe... You're kind of scared. You're kind of extra scared. Or if you have a friend that maybe has been down a certain path and you're like, man, I've been there before. Please don't do this. You know, we kind of get extra concerned. I actually, like I mentioned earlier, I'm recently married. And so when you get married, you need a whole new set of everything. Okay? So I was trying to compile a new sofa, couch, TV, all these different kinds of things. And um, one of the things I really needed was a TV because that was a big deal to me. And my dad was like, well, hey. You, know, you can have my TV. It's, it's really big, but you can carry it, you know? And it was really cool because it was a big screen TV. But this was not a modern day big screen TV. This was a modern, this was a big screen TV circa 1999, okay? I don't know if you remember those big screens, but they were about like this big. And they were the kind of like they, they set on the speakers. It was like its own built in entertainment center. It was about this big, and they, wore, they weighed about two tons. And so I had plans to go over there and get it and use that for our TV. And I'm talking about it one day during uh, one of our staff meetings. And JJ, the guy who does our music, he like I'm, I'm talking like, yeah, I got this TV and I'm gonna go get it. We're gonna move it. It's gonna be awesome. And I'm gonna have this really huge TV. And he stopped. He's like, don't do it. He's like, like really serious. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, what did I do? He's like, he said, like, you trust me? Don't do it. He's like, I, I've done this before. I tried once because I, I literally almost died. If anything, I messed up my back. You know, I'm never gonna be able to have kids ever again. He remembers this. He was like, he was like, yeah. he was like whatever you do. Do not move the big screen TV. He was adamant about it, okay? He said, look, just, just save up some money. You know, just go out that TV for a while. Save up some money and buy yourself a decent TV. You can just carry up. So we did that. Luckily, we had enough gift cards, and we were able to buy ourselves a, not the best TV, but a TV that wasn't going to kill somebody. And so, but he was extra adamant. And so this morning, as we're reading this, this letter, I want you to understand that maybe if Paul comes off kind of harsh sometimes, or, or if it kind of seems like, man, he's, he's really frustrated here. I just want you to know that, that Paul has been here before. He's extra passionate about this. And so Paul says this. He says we should have no confidence in our flesh. And I understand that flesh is kind of a churchy word. And if you don't know what that means, basically here in the church, and when we read the Bible, we believe that flesh means kind of our personal ability, the natural rebelliousness that's kind of in us from birth to kind of want to rebel from God. It's interesting. The early church, they were actually about to be cannibals because they would talk about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood, okay? And, but, but we have to remember, these are things we use simply as symbols to show kind of what's going on in our lives. And, and here's the thing that Paul's saying. There's evil inside of us. You know, anybody can look out and say, there's evil in this world. And sometimes we have a tendency to kind of maybe point out the evildoers over here, maybe like the bad people or like the bad country that's evil, and we're kind of like the good guys. But what we have to realize is that's even the extent of our own selfishness. To, to, to think that, you, that we individually are not a part of evil in this world, that that's sin in of itself. And so Paul says that because of that, we put no confidence in our flesh. We put confidence in Jesus. Paul mentioned circumcision in, earlier in there. And one of the main things these Judaizers are saying is you have to be circumcised. Whereas today, most babies are circumcised within maybe like the first two weeks. 
Uh, back then, they weren't. And the kind of the patriarch of the faith, Abraham, there was a covenant that God made with Abraham. And, and he said, look, you're going to circumcise yourself and your descendants, and this is going to kind of show an outward sign of the covenant and that I'm going to bless you. But, but all these years later, these Judaizers have taken this thing called circumcision, and they've made it the actual covenant. See, that's what legalism does. Legalism takes the details and makes it more important than the subject. It takes the small things and makes them the big things. And legalism, it always lives in the past. So here it is. Here, here's kind of like the crux of what Paul is saying and, why we, and, and the reason why we don't put confidence in our flesh. We cannot fix the problem, Paul says, because we are the problem. You're the problem. I'm, I'm the problem. Your actions cannot fix what your actions have created. That's like a fire marshal saying, okay, look, he's going to run into his guys and they're going to put out this fire. He's like, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to put more fire on top of this fire and that's how we're going to do it. His guys are like, yeah. They're like, that's not going to work, okay? So because so everybody knows fire does not quench fire. Hunger doesn't quench hunger. And our imperfection doesn't quench our imperfection. Water quenches fire. Food quenches hunger. And Jesus' perfection only quenches our imperfection. One of my favorite kind of uh, things in movies is, is the cliche illustration where, like, the guy will dump a girl, and she's really, really upset. She's, and she's crying, and she's just heartbroken, and he leaves, and all of her girlfriends come over and like console her. Like, oh, he's, he's a jerk. You know, you don't, you don't need him. You're better than him. All this kind of stuff. And... And uh, so they're consoling her, she's upset. And then the guy shows back up, right? And he like, tries to console her and help her out. And they're like, you've done enough, okay? Like, Because they're like, you've created this problem. You have hurt this person. And, and, and we know that. But when somebody hurts you, you don't want that person to console you. And that's what Paul is saying. We have kind of caused this problem. And because we have caused the problem, we put no confidence in our own flesh or our own ability, but in Jesus Christ because he is perfect. And so therefore... We should have no confidence in our own ability, but look to Christ for true freedom in God. So let's like carry on. We're going to go back to our text. We're going to pick up in verse 3, three verses 3 through 7 really quick. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I countless lost for the sake of knowing Jesus. The second thing is this. Paul says our greatest deeds are nothing compared to God's perfection. Paul immediately dispels this myth that somehow we can be good enough for the kingdom. He says, look, okay, Jude, do you think you're good? Look at my resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision is not a big deal for Paul. Of the people of Israel, he's a direct descendant of Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was a big deal because the first king of Israel came from there. So if you were kind of from the tribe of Benjamin, you were kind of, kind of almost royalty. So Paul's like, look, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born Hebrew parents, fully trained in all the traditions. He was a Pharisee. They were the top level of the Jewish legalists. And as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. That back in that day, the more of a, a Jew you were, the better of a Jew you were, the more you persecuted the church. Paul said he was one of them. He said 
that I've been there before, and these rules that you are imposing on these new believers, they do not create freedom, and they do not create unity with God. So only faith in Jesus creates true freedom and unity with God. I recently graduated college, and uh, one of the first things I guess you do when you graduate college is you've got to get a job. And the way in our society that you get a job is you get together your personal resume. Okay? And I don't want to say that we lie on our resumes, but I think we embellish a little bit sometimes. We kind of make ourselves sound good while we, while we deserve this position, you know. It's like, I'm going to tell you every single good thing I've ever done. I'm going to tell you how, you know, I turned this organization around, how I saved the company all this money. I'm going to tell you how I'm qualified. I was part of these groups and all these types of things. But we don't tend to tell people on our resumes the things that we haven't done. We don't say, look, you know, I actually kind of cost the company a lot of money because I went on a three-week vacation to Cancun. You know, you, we don't tell them how, kind of some of the bad things that we've done. And, and here's the thing. God is looking for total perfection. And no matter how good your resume is, even if it's as good as Paul's, as Paul is saying here, it's not good enough. God, God is looking for perfection. Paul says we need to put away our spiritual resume and apply with Jesus Christ. If you were to go out here in the street and ask, like, so how good of a person is good enough to be reconciled with God, to spend eternity with God, how, how good is a good enough person? And you would get a million different answers. Because, you know, we tend to base our standards of what is good based upon kind of who we are. Even the worst person in the world tends to think they're a good person. Isn't that kind of how it is? Let me give you an example. Think of, like, the two worst things in your head that you think a person could ever do. Like, two horrible you know, atrocious things that, that just would make somebody less than human. And then ask yourself this, have you ever done one of those two things? Probably. You know, the things that we think are really bad are the things we generally haven't done. And the things that we have done, we kind of make excuses for. We kind of make excuses for ourselves. And that's why Paul is saying this idea of, of being good enough doesn't make sense. Because even in our own mind, when we're good enough, we've created this image of, of good based upon kind of who we are. We set the game up so that we... When? And even further than that, it's confusing. I mean, so it was like a 70-30 ratio good enough. This was really confusing for these new Christians. And, and Paul said, look, I'm going to simplify it right here. Okay, all these laws about not using a, you know, an ox and a donkey to mow at the same time. I mean, all these kind of things that we're putting together, look, we're going to put those out the window. It's simply through faith in Jesus. Only faith in Jesus is going to bring you true freedom and unity with God. And, and you say, I, I know this, I've heard this a million times, we need to be reminded of this daily. Because we get these, these, kind of, these kind of sets in our life where we're trying to like, hey, prove something to God or prove something to our family. And Paul is saying it is simply based upon faith in Jesus. Our deeds may seem worthy, but when compared to the perfection of God, they're not. Uh, imagine this. Imagine if you were in charge of the Houston Rockets. And this might kind of touchy subject right now. Free agency's been kind of tough for the Rockets. Got a lot, lot worse. So, but imagine you were in charge of making the Rockets a better team. The first thing you've got to do before you can make a judgment on anything is you first have to have a standard. You have to kind of create this thing that you're going to compare what you're evaluating to, okay? So if you're the Rockets, the first thing you have to find is a standard to compare the Rockets to. If the standard that you pick is the Lanier Middle School 7th grade B team, they're going to look pretty good. They're stronger, they're faster, they dunk better, they shoot better. They're overall better. But here's the thing. What about when you compare them to the Miami Heat? How good have they been? I'm a big LeBron James fan, and so I think he's the best player in the world, so I uh, hope you're okay with that this morning. But compared to the Heat, the Rockets are not very good, and we learned that this past season. And so the, kind of what Paul's saying here is, look, you think you're good, 
and, and you're, you're doing these different things, and, and you're making yourself look out like this good person, but compare yourself to the perfection of God. Paul wants to be the best, and so when you're a Rockets, if you want to be the best, you've got to compare yourself to the champion. You've got to compare yourself to the Miami Heat. And so when Paul's like, when you're trying to be unified with God, when you're trying to find true freedom, you've got to compare yourself to the perfect standard of God. Paul is saying, look, I want the best, so I'm going to compare myself to the best. But when I do that, I realize that even the good, the best things I've done, even though I'm circumcised, even, even though I'm a Hebrew and I follow all these commandments, I'm nothing compared to God. And I count everything I am as lost in order that I would know Jesus Christ. Paul's saying even the best resume when compared to Jesus is rubbish. And the last thing on this point is this. When we sit here and think that our good, uh, we are good enough to be reconciled with God, we devalue God. We, we elevate ourselves and we devalue God. Think of all the things you've done in your life that wind up in the best things. Try uniting that with God. It doesn't work. God is, God is perfect. But he didn't leave us kind of stuck, kind of separated from him. He made a way. But Paul's saying it's through Jesus and not through this law. Because your actions can't fix the problem that your actions cause. And so... Our greatest deeds are nothing compared to God. And the third and final thing is this. The personal faith in Jesus allows us to personally experience the resurrection of Jesus. Let's finish these last four verses here in the book of Philippians. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We have personal faith in Jesus we personally experience the resurrection of Jesus. This isn't just something that we watch, even though we do watch it. This is something we personally experience in our lives. And I know this message can maybe seem kind of heavy. Uh, we're talking about how bad people we are and how we're evil and all these types of things. But, but here's the good news, okay? That we personally experience the resurrection of Jesus in our lives. We often talk about how we share in the sufferings of Jesus, how we share in like, the pain, how it's going to be hard. But we often forget this idea that we actually share in the resurrection of Jesus. And we get to experience the surpassing worth, not just the worth of Jesus, but the surpassing worth of Jesus. It's always more than we think. A really good friend of mine describes Jesus' surpassing worth in this passage this way. He says, I love the idea of Jesus' surpassing worth. I get the image of a light that shines brighter and engulfs all the other lights. And flowing out of this source as evidence of his worth is a glory-filling, righteousness-giving, death-conquering hope. When Jesus overcame the grave, he overcame everything, not just physical life. The resurrection was confirmation that Jesus was killed and risen again. That he, it was confirmation that he was exactly who he says he was and the Savior of the world. And so this run of our personal actions is overcome when we find our identity, not in our deeds, not in the things that we do, but in this actual resurrection of Jesus. And we receive a resurrection of various aspects in our life. There's a resurrection of morality when we, when we find faith in Jesus. Whereas we're kind of just doing random good deeds for no reason, not there's a purpose behind it. 
And then there's a resurrection of our purpose in, in general. Whereas we were maybe just kind of these purposeless, meaningless beings, kind of, kind of found ourselves on planet Earth. We now are part of the greatest story in the history of the world. We find a resurrection in our lives of being able to love our families, even on the days when it's hard and we're tired and we're cranky. There's a resurrection of loving other people. I mean, without Jesus, without God, why would you, why would you love somebody else? Why would you do a good thing for somebody? You're going to be here for 60 years and you're going to die, and that's it. Why would you not just maximize your own pleasure? Now we have a reason to not live like that. We have a reason to love each other. There's a resurrection of hope in our lives. We can have hope in the cross. There's a resurrection of confidence. And there's a resurrection of freedom. When you believe in Jesus, you find true freedom. Because you're not tied to this world. You're not tied to these circumstances. You're not tied to all these things that constantly kind of go up and down. You know, no, nobody likes that person that's happy one minute and upset the, the next. It, it, it feels like you feel their imbalance and it weighs on you. And, and here's the thing. You cannot find true freedom in anything that can be taken away from you. When you're trying to find true freedom, anything that could possibly that you could lose or that could be taken from you, it's not true freedom. Because there's a variable there. Possessions. You can't find freedom in a possession. It can be stolen. We, know things, we lose things all the time. We don't take those with us when we die. You don't find freedom in your family. Family's a great blessing from God, but you know, we don't find true freedom in our family. We don't find it in our cultural identity. We're in a bad economy. People lose their jobs all the time. If you pride yourself on your occupation or, or what you do, it can change in a heartbeat. One of the songs that we sang this morning was uh, It Is Well, and it says, It Is Well With My Soul. And I, I don't know if you all know the, the message behind the song. I'm sure some of you do, but basically that is a song that was written by a man who had just found out that his wife and his child had died. They were, uh, they were overseas, away from him. They were coming back, and the ship they were on sank, and his child and his wife died. And we found out the news. The first thing he wrote was even, even when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, I have been taught to say that it is well with my soul. That man has true freedom. That man knows that he has true freedom. There is nothing that will shake this guy. He understands that when we are looking for the true freedom that we desire and for unity with God that we desire, we only find this when we have faith in Jesus. That only faith in Jesus brings true freedom and unity. We place so many, so much confidence in tangible things and those are the easiest things to lose. You cannot have true freedom in anything you could possibly lose. So only faith in Jesus brings true freedom and unity with God. And so in close, you say, okay, so how do I have faith? I, I get it. I need, I need faith. It's not my work. It's faith. But how do I have faith? Or, or what is even faith in general? Here it is. You have faith by hearing the message of Jesus and believing. You have faith in believing the gospel that says that Jesus lived a perfect life for you. And that when he died... We are allowed to believe in him and take part in his resurrection. And then we are made perfect before God. He sees us as perfect when we have faith in Jesus. And so, so how do we live a life of faith, you ask? How, how, do, I, how do I do this? Well, some practical ways are, are read the word of God. Long for his truth. There, there are other questions we have. The answers are right in this book. You can pray to God to build a relationship like you would do with anybody else. 
You can be a part of the church and sacrifice for your peers. Next, uh, next Sunday, we have missions partner prep. And so if you're interested in being part of our church, uh, that's a good practical way to do that. It's next Sunday. It's 2 p.m. after the service. That, that's a good way you can have faith. We here are a community of faith because we are united in our faith. We're not necessarily united in our like, socioeconomic status or anything. We're simply united in faith in Jesus. And then the last thing is we do these things by realizing that these things are not what save you but are simply evidence of your faith in Jesus. I'm reminded of one of my favorite parables in the, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13. And basically it's the story of this guy who finds this treasure that has an um, endless worth, an infinite worth. He finds it in this treasure, this field. But he knows the field's not his. So what he does, he, he puts the, the treasure back and he leaves because he doesn't want him to stop his land. But what he does is he goes back, Jesus says, to where he lives, sells all of his possessions, sells all of his land, takes everything he gets, and he goes back and he buys this land which this treasure is on so that he can possess this treasure. He buys the land, it's his. And Jesus compares this to the kingdom of God. He says, look, Jesus says, you've stumbled upon this great thing, the kingdom of God and being a part of that through Jesus. He says, will you, will you sell everything you have to take hold of this? Will you lose everything so you can gain everything? That's what Paul is saying. But Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's what I'm calling you to this morning. That that's my challenge for you, is that we would not find our identity in anything else other than Jesus, because we know it's free. It is my prayer this morning that we would believe fully out that it is only faith in Jesus that we find true freedom and unity with God. Would you all pray with me this morning?